Yeah, th these actors are criminals. And while the Russian government allows them to operate kind of with carte blanche uh, access to the rest of the world, as long as these criminals kind of stay off of Russian soil, then the two business models don't really conflict. So the criminals, as long as they don't intrude and ransom Putin's interest, he is not going to rein them in. There's no incentive. The time is not too far ahead when you will be able to have a box about so big on your desk which has a little screen on it and a dial. And after dialing a key code, you will dial the catalogue number of any book in the Library of Congress if you want to And at any rate that you wish, the spread pages of that book will appear on your television screen. Welcome to the Lock and Shield podcast presented by Newstar. I'm your host, John MacArthur, Director of Security Intelligence within Newstar Security Solutions Group. Given the ongoing trend of ransomware attacks and higher and higher ransoms being paid, we thought we'd take a deeper look, understanding how serious the threats are to enterprises and how they can defend themselves against them. Joining me today is a special guest, Brian Keim, who is a senior analyst in the security and risk practice at Forrester. Brian has an extensive background in cybersecurity matters, including serving as a senior intelligence analyst in the United States Army. Brian, thanks for being on the podcast. And before we start diving into all things ransomware, let me ask, how did you get involved in cybersecurity? Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Uh, my journey into cybersecurity began one of my first active duty assignments. I was just kind of an IT manager, but I had a little bit of security responsibilities with like Active Directory and cross-domain transfers and stuff. And um, a former boss of mine, uh, a commander, was acting as a contractor as like the, the nuts and bolts kind of IT guy, sysadmin. And so I, I spent like a couple of years with him basically and did a couple other active duty assignments, including a deployment overseas and then said, oh, okay, I want to go and get a real job now. <laughs> and what can I offer someone? And I'm like, you know, I think I'm pretty good at this intelligence thing. And, and I kind of like the security thing now too. Like, is this like a thing? And pleasantly surprised to find that actually like what, what we now call cyber threat intelligence was becoming a, a real discipline within cybersecurity. So got hired on by uh, Dell Securex. As at the time, I was called an IT security intel analyst. Still, you know, a shout out to my first boss at Securex, Berlin Heron. First best boss I've ever had there. She's a retired army Russian linguist. Oh, wow. And, you know, she helped set me up for like all my success since then. So Berlin, if you're listening, thank you again. Um, she's retired fully now from her second career. So yeah, you know, and then did a little time at the vendor, right? And then I went and did uh, threat intelligence for a very large critical infrastructure asset owner, uh, that Southern company here in Atlanta, you know, helping to keep uh, state nexus actors out of our electric and natural gas operations. And then um, an opportunity arose to come here to Forrester, and I wasn't looking to become an industry analyst, but they said I could research and write about threat intelligence and industrial control system security, a couple of things that I have become passionate about over the years. And I thought that sounds pretty cool, you know? Uh, let's do that for a bit. Um, let's get all these things out of my head that I've been thinking for a while. And, um, you know, we used a Forrester name to to, make, to to mature the threat intel industry and all. So I'm I'm happy to be here about 18 months now. Uh, you know, done a bunch of stuff already, and and I'm still digging it. So yeah, and I'm glad to be here, John. 
No, very cool. It's great to have you. And, you know, that background speaks very largely to what we want to talk about today in ransomware. I'm um, talking about industrial systems, Active Directory. I think all of the, <laughs> all of mm-hmm. that has a place here in our discussion today. And I think it goes without saying, right, the last 18 months have been a tumultuous time. Uh, th- the COVID pandemic has impacted everybody's lives. But over the last 18 months, it also seems like we have a disturbing trend of more and more ransomware attacks with increasing ransoms being demanded and sometimes being paid. Um, we t- we've talked about Colonial Pipeline in May, which is 4.4 ransom, million dollar ransom. Uh, JBS just happened in June, $11 million. There was Whirlpool in December. Numerous school districts, hospitals, municipalities, technology, manufacturing companies, no one is being spared. So I guess I'll just start with the basic is, what should we expect? Should we expect this to get better or worse? So looking at the incentives, I don't see an incentive for these ransomware criminals to stop. There's lots of big businesses that have a lot of money that can be ransomed. And I think the business model, because this is a business, illicit, but still a business, that these criminals have created has enabled them to scale and go after you know bigger victims, bigger targets now. Um, most people didn't know about Colonial until mid-May. Uh, they didn't probably didn't know about JBS Foods either, and, and yeah, so we're going to see I think some more soon. You know, we I was looking into this recently for another client. 2019, there were only like two groups that were doing the extortion thing, the the hack and leak. And through 2020, I think that grew to something like 24 different groups. Now there's sites dedicated to tracking the victims because that's part of their thing. You know, don't pay and I'm going to shame you on my website. So one, we, you know, we don't even fully understand the scope of the problem. Uh, most victims have not you know, had to report, mm-hmm. nor would they um, voluntarily report a breach. Things like Colonial are hard to hide because when oil products stop flowing, it's pretty obvious, right? You know, right. I live here in Atlanta. We had the long lines and the plastic bag over the pump handles, you know, when they were empty. Uh, it was, it could have been much worse. But, you know, so, so those things are kind of hard to hide. If it's just ransoming, you know, customer data, you can kind of conceal that. But when, when poultry products and pork products, you know, are not in the store, people will, will start asking questions, right? Absolutely. You know, you didn't mention Molson Coors, you know, if my beer's not there, <laughs> I'm going to be pretty disappointed, right? We didn't touch on the important stuff, no. <laughs> All right, Brian, so then when we, when we talk about the recent spate of ransomware attacks, who, who are the sources for these infiltrations, you know, and, and what, is, what is the level of effort to issue them? You know, what level of funding do they, do they need? You know, how are they able to attack such a broad scope of businesses? Yeah, th- these actors are criminals. Some folks wanted to blame the Colonial Pipeline incident on the Russian government. And while the Russian government allows them to operate kind of with carte blanche uh, access to the rest of the world, as long as these criminals kind of stay off of Russian soil, then the two business models don't really uh, conflict. So the criminals, as long as they don't intrude and ransom Putin's interest, he is not going to rein them in. There's no incentive for the Russian government to stop the ransomware criminals operating from their soil. There just isn't. Like I said, this is a business and these uh, ransomware actors have created this ransomware as a service model. And so you have one group that supplies the infrastructure Mm. and then they recruit 
customers that then turn that ransomware as a service tool against some victims. And then there's some splitting of the profits from a, a, a successful ransomware uh, extortion. So I, they don't need funding from the Russian government. They just need to be left alone. And these criminals are smart enough that they're not going to attack Russian entities. And it's been reported that some of this ransomware, uh, the malware, actually does look for certain indicators of where the system is. So it checks for Russian language packs on Windows. It looks at the IP address. If the public IP is in a Russian um, is a Russian ISP, or it's in a uh, one of the, in the sphere of influence that Commonwealth right. of Independent States like Belarus, um, Kazakhstan, and, and, and things like that. If it's in that near kind of abroad from Russia, then the malware doesn't execute. So the ransomware, technically and and strategically, you know, they are staying out of Russian targets so that they don't mess with Putin's business model. You know, as long as they keep their businesses independent. All good as far as um, the ransomware criminals are are uh, are concerned with. And, and I was going to say it's it's safe to say too if these attacks are sort of being launched against United States enterprises and you know industrial companies or our allies, that's not something Russia necessarily is concerned with because there's some destabilization there. So I suppose there's there's a motive there as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, creating some chaos on U.S. soil fits into Russian strategic goals. Absolutely. And we don't have, as a, as a country, um, and as the West, so NATO countries, the US, the Five Eyes countries, we don't have publicly determined available red lines. Like if a criminal does X on, if a Russian criminal does X on American soil, then this is going to be some response. Maybe it's a physical response. Maybe it's sanctions. You know, we have a wide range of responses that we could take in these incidents. And we haven't figured that out yet. If a terrorist launched an attack from Russian soil and blew up a pipeline in the United States, we'd, we'd work with Russian authorities probably to extradite that person. We, we tend to actually cooperate on terrorism. But now we're talking cybercrime. And while we have some metaphors, I think, for things in the physical world, mm-hmm. I think it's just it's different enough that we can't apply the same kind of frameworks that we would use for terrorism. It doesn't cross the same line. Yeah. While some of the effects might be kind of similar, you know, I'm not, I don't have to rebuild the pipeline. You know, if a terrorist blew it up, that pipeline's offline for a very long time until it gets rebuilt. Colonial was backing up and running within a week. So it's, it's different and it's somewhat deniable. Can the victim, in this case, Colonial, Colonial can't necessarily say it was this person sitting in this town in front of this computer. You know, private companies just don't have these sources and methods to get to big A attribution, like the actual hands-on keyboard operator that executed the attack. They don't have that there. Um, and for certain reasons, you know, it, wanted, it will take a while for the FBI to identify that criminal. And then even then, to protect sources and methods, some of that information may never become public. They'll take what public information, what unclassified information is available and, and use that for indictments usually. And so we, we have a, um, a very hard problem deterring these types of crimes, you know, yeah. Hey there, just a quick break from the podcast to bring you this interesting ransomware historical note. According to digitalguardian.com, 
The first known ransomware attack was initiated in 1989 by Joseph Popp, PhD, an evolutionary biologist who carried out the attack by distributing 20,000 floppy disks to health researchers spanning more than 90 countries. Claiming that the disk contained a program that analyzed an individual's risk of acquiring disease through the use of a questionnaire. However, the disk also contained a malware program that initially remained dormant in computers, only activating after computer was powered on 90 times. After the 90 start threshold was reached, the malware displayed a message demanding a payment of $189 and another $378 for a software lease. That pales in comparison to today's ransoms. But this ransomware attack became known as the PC Cyborg. Do you have an interesting security story to share? Reach out to us at Lock and Shield at Team Newstar. I mean, how do you see government authorities becoming involved in sort of addressing if and when ransoms are paid? Because we know Colonial paid, sounds like JBS paid. You know, do do you see more legislation or regulation or, or, or even policy around around that where they where the government would be advising on if or when to pay? I mean, the FBI's position is don't pay. That's not that there's nuance there, of course. They understand that certain things have a lot of value and there could be safety and health issues involved there. And so they don't they advise not to pay, but they understand it kind of if you have to, right? Some folks have said we should outlaw ransom payments. And I'm like, well, what if I was a pharmaceutical company designing and manufacturing a vaccine that was in extremely high demand right now around the world? What if I was Moderna or Pfizer or AstraZeneca, Novavox, I think is the other one that's got a phase three trial out now. You know, what if I was one of those companies, right? And all my research into that life-saving vaccine was ransom. Are you telling me that you would put the company's owners in jail if they paid a ransom to get that research back and continue working on this life-saving vaccine or that life-saving cancer treatment? No, like I don't think anyone in the right mind, like when you start to frame it in that like specific scenario, then it's like, yeah, well, okay, maybe we don't make it illegal. We should deter it, obviously, you know, in general, don't pay, right? Right. I think if you force some kind of reporting, you might end up learning less about it. You know, there, there would be somewhat of an incentive to not report, right? So would, if, if I can get away with not reporting, you know, I might do it because there could be harm to my brand's reputation if I do disclose that we've had a ransomware incident. What else can the uh, government do? Um, some folks said, oh, it's amazing. The FBI was able to get back like 60% of the Bitcoin, right? This is awesome. Yeah, that was the exception. It's not the rule. Now, the FBI has done it before. It just hasn't been as high profile. This is, I think, the most high profile seizure of Bitcoin um, paid out by victims. This is not the rule going forward. This is not standard practice if in the process of investigating the breach, they happen to find a private key or get access somehow, cool. But no one should plan on the FBI recovering a ransom. And on that note, let me ask you, because I think a lot of people saw that report where, yeah, over 60% of that ransom, $2.4 million or so, 2.3 was recovered. What's the sense in the industry? Is it understood like, hey guys, that is the exception here. FBI did, you know, did a great job tracking down that. Is that understood? Like, don't count on this, or did was there sort of a oh, there's a way out of this sort of sense? 
I don't know for sure. I know there were a lot of people that said, this is the exception. Like, don't bank on this, guys. <laughs> I mean, I, I was writing about it. Hopefully, I know others were. <sighs> but, you know, CEOs and board members probably aren't reading my tweets. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, if they listen to this podcast, you know, there we go. this is the exception, not the rule. Hopefully they'll, they'll see this too. I would suspect though, that some board members and C-suite type, uh, folks probably do see that and think, Oh man, that's part of our plan now. Just have the FBI fix it for us. Right. <sighs> I hope they're not doing that. I say there's probably a, um, a number north of zero of boards that that have worked that into their incident response plan now. Um, I hope it's very low numbers. I, I hope people do realize that this is not common. It's not always possible. Let, let, let's hope that common sense prevails, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm wondering too, if you have a sense, like, you know, we know these ransoms are paid. Um, and you, you sort of mentioned the marketplace there where there's sort of brokers who can launch the attacks based on the needs of, of others. I mean, is there concern, you know, how big is the concern that maybe these these ransoms will find their, their way back to say more, you know, more formal, what we consider terrorist organizations that might issue physical attacks. Like, is, is that a concern that comes up when we talk about paying ransoms for these attacks? I have heard that mentioned. Um... The U.S. government did say they're going to prioritize ransomware and these extortion types of events at the same level as terrorism. Perhaps some people read into that in thinking that ransomware criminals and terrorists are like intertangled now, Mm -hmm. are, are working together. I've seen nothing that supports that. I think it would actually be bad business if the ransomware folks did start working with transnational terrorists. I think that'd be bad for their business because if I could use terrorism authorities and partnerships to combat terrorism, if I can tie some ransomware group to terror activity, now I now the Russian government may be willing to play ball and actually extradite one of the criminals. So I think it's really unlikely that ransomware operators are sending some of their proceeds to terrorists. Just doesn't make good business sense to me. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, we've talked about the problem and sort of the scope of it, I guess is the next question would be how long until we have sort of, you know, ubiquitous solutions or processes in place to, to, to stop these. I mean, I think, I think in my mind, I'm thinking of DDoS, you know, started to be a major problem. It started two decades ago, but the late two thousands DDoS became a major problem, disruption of businesses, but we have solutions in place largely to mitigate those. And we do hear about them, but the impact seems to be less and less. What about what about the ransomware attacks? You know, where do we stand there defending against them? That's a sixty-four thousand dollars question, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I wish there was a DDoS model. We could just kind of put some control and just pretty simply reduce the impact of a particular type of attack. And you know, because DDoS, you know, is volumetric coming over the you know the wire, it's pretty easy to spot, pretty easy to mitigate. I think. Ransomware is different, though, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, over the wire, what maybe a ransomware actor could just could be some state nexus, you know, espionage going on. Could be uh, a criminal that maybe doesn't want to extort. Maybe maybe is just going to steal some data and then resell that. Maybe it's payment card data. So um, 
you know, over the wire, I don't know, we can filter out these things, right? Mm -hmm. And do some DDoS type solution. Even on endpoints, you know, it's hard to understand kind of until you see the ransom notes and you see your company's name appear in that uh, ransomware list of victims that you kind of know what's going on here. So there's uh, there's not one control uh, that's going to, I think, resolve these. Um, what we do, of course, advocate at Forrester is the zero trust security model. And while zero trust may not prevent all breaches, it will reduce the impact of those breaches. Got it. And I guess let's 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 pull on that thread. Let's talk about that. What at, at the most basic level, what is what is the zero trust security model? Yeah. So the zero trust security model is based on a few principles. So we assume that all networks are untrusted. Least privilege is required, and we assume breach. So digging a little deeper in there, right? We used to consider our corporate on-premises networks as trusted networks, mm -hmm. right? We tended to have that hard, crunchy exterior, like an M&M. And inside was nice and chewy, you know, and soft. We trusted the inside, right? But we have insider threats and once and threats, external threats that get in our network, then start moving laterally throughout our network, searching for critical data and critical business processes and things that they can steal or impact and hold for ransoms and whatnot. Uh, least privilege. We don't want to give people access to something solely based on the network they are on at the moment. You know, traditionally, we thought about this as your coffee shops and your hotels and airport Wi-Fis. Well, we, we don't want to trust those, right? You know, so we do, we, we do VPNs. Mm -hmm. When you're at the hotel, get your connection, you got your um, captive portal, you authenticate there, then your VPN kicks on, and now I'm safe, right? I'm back in the corporate network. Everything's awesome. I can trust this <laughs> network, right? Yeah, not a good strategy these days, right? Um, all of us at home is our is our home networks really trusted, right? So many of us are, are you know knowledge workers are still sitting at home uh, using their residential Wi-Fi networks, but we have our kids running around and our spouses. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm just in such of a habit from being an Army Intel officer that the second my butt leaves my seat. I hit win L and I lock my screen. It's such a habit that's ingrained in me, but how many people are securing their system while they get up to use the restroom to go make dinner at the end of the business day, right? right. And your kid could come behind and screw things up. Your spouse might come by and maybe you've been living together nonstop for 18 months and they're fed up with you. And well, I'm going to send a nasty email to, you know, to the spouse's boss and, and get them in trouble. Maybe I'm going to start stealing data because um, there's plausible deniability. You know, it's not it's not their system; it's the spouses. And so, you know, maybe they've learned enough uh, by hearing all the phone conversations, and they're like, "Oh, if I just you know go to this site, if I look for this, I'll find all that sensitive, all that data." And you know, you may have this kind of weird insider threat scenario where it's your spouse or or a child that is taking advantage of your access. So just because you're at home doesn't mean that any organization should trust that home network. Assume breach, right? Mm -hmm. We're not going to stop all the breaches. If we start from a mentality that there's likely a threat with some access to our network now, we're going to be vigilant. And we're going to think holistically about our security. So we're going to look at the zero trust extended framework model data is at the center. That's what we're trying to protect. Mm -hmm. 
and what talks and, and, and works with the data, right? People use data. Their devices store the, the data. The data goes over networks and workloads process the data. So unlike defense in depth, which is more just let's build lots of layers of security controls in, Zero Trust orchestrates and automates all these things together, right? So we can do more risk-based approaches to ensure that someone is authorized to access certain data, regardless of where they are in the world. Got it. And that would, you know, if I, if I use the example of myself, and obviously I've been working from home here through the pandemic. So just by virtue of the fact I am VPN in, I shouldn't necessarily have all the keys to all the candy stores here with a new star, right? Correct. It should always be whether I'm in the office, out of the office, on my mobile device, there's some understanding of John does this. This is John's role within the company. He has this privilege. Regardless of where he is, this is the privilege he should have, not more, to your point, the, the least privilege needed. Yep. Um, and then I'm assuming, too, there's other other checks around, you know, Probably, probably endpoint checks around is this device kosher? Is it up to up to date with OS, et cetera, is acceptable? But ultimately, we're talking about the individual accessing or an application accessing a process. Exactly. Yep. Well, on that note, and you, you talked about automation orchestration of of the security zero trust security model. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about this when you're talking with with C level folks or CISOs? What what are the mis big misconceptions they might have about this? Because when I hear orchestration, I think automation. I start to think new equipment. I start to think I start I start to think dollar signs. Yep. So what are what are you know is, is that the case or are we already you know is there there's something that this is more simple than I'm thinking? So your forester's been championing zero trust for over a decade now, going back to John Kindervag, and then most recently, Dr. Chase Cunningham. And now recently, we're, we're really spreading the wealth in zero trust research at, um, at Forrester. And we have a report out from last year about myths around zero trust. One, you have some vendors that are marketing zero trust technologies, right? Mm -hmm. We do have zero trust um, network access vendors out there, ZTNA. There's a few other vendors that I think are, are offering some kind of zero trust thing, right? With Biden's executive order mandating zero trust for federal government networks, we're probably going to have a lot more marketing focused on zero trust, <laughs> you know, that it is what it is, right? So understandably, a lot of buyers are going to see dollar signs, right? But the myth that zero trust requires complete re-architecture, new technology stack, you know, is, is just inaccurate. So we have a lot of things. Everyone probably has a lot of things available already that they can use to start their zero trust journey. All the, you know, most of our systems have some kind of role-based access, right? So give people just enough access to do their job, right? Routers have access control lists. You know, if a network doesn't have any business talking to your network, write an access control rule that says, then, you know, network X doesn't have to talk to me, right? If you're uh, if you only do business in France, do you need does your networks need to talk to North Korea? No, no, yeah. no. You know, so let's let's shrink the um the the needle stack, if you will, right? Let's let's shrink that. It makes it easier to find bad, right? Of course, there's ways around that. People say, well, well, you know, I'll just set up a VPS server like in your country. Well, yes, that's going to happen, right? We still treat all networks as untrusted, so you know, but we we use some of our our built-in tools, right? Account segregation is something huge. We talk about this a lot. Uh, my colleagues, Sean Ryan and Andras Char, talk about this a lot. So, and coming from the utility space, we did this pretty well. This is one of the things I was, I'm really proud about the old company that 
we segmented our, our user accounts based on role. So everyone had, of course, their corporate account they logged onto for email and whatnot. If you were an admin on some server, you had an admin account that had totally unique credentials. Um, and those were managed with a privileged access management tool. Coming from the utility side, if you were in electric generation, you had an account specific to that domain. Transmission, another account, very specific there. So if, that, um, if my user account got compromised, it would have no access to any transmission stuff, which is part of the bulk electric system, highly regulated, and very bad if that goes down, right? So by segmenting all these accounts, I can't hop from phishing Brian to turning the power off. I'd have to go through so many different steps. I'd have to find someone with the right access. Then I'd have to actually manipulate them into getting their other account info and that other credential. And that was, so we made it really hard. And that's not really defense in depth. That's, you know, that's more zero trust, right? Least privilege. You know, My general user account has only enough privileges to do my basic business tasks. And then I have specific accounts that do other things like cloud things and admin things and, and generation things, you know, if you have the right tickets, of course. And I had some IT, I had some security admin stuff and some cloud stuff. I had nothing in the ops side because I didn't touch all that. I was there, you know, to do threat intel, of course. So I didn't need access to that. Why would you give me access to that? I'd only, I would only cause damage. So account segregation it's basically free, you know. It doesn't cost much to set up new accounts in Active Directory. That's that's cheap, <laughs> you know. So do that, you know. Don't use your same account to admin a router as you would to check email and browse the web. It's really that simple, and it's really that cheap. Uh, multi-factor authentication is not all that expensive either, especially for the, those privileged accounts. Mm-hmm. Use MFA. Other things that are are important. I mean, asset discovery is huge. You can you can automate with PowerShell and start automating pulling down all your assets, right? That's not, that's not too terribly hard. Um, there's a lot of things that you probably already have in your environment that you can use to start on your zero trust journey. Yeah, as you're describing sort of the, the, the segment, segmenting, segmenting of applications and access more specifically, I'm reminded of the, the hack that occurred probably about, was it six years ago now, a major retailer in the United States, let's just say, mm-hmm. their point of sale system and credit card infor- information was stolen uh, the entry point was, was determined to be their HVAC system. Yep, it was. Third-party risk is is huge. Um, you know, coming back into the utility space, uh, this is this is how the Russians were doing it. Twenty seventeen, they were intruding upon a lot of suppliers to electric and uh, electric utilities, and then violating the trust relationship we have with that vendor. We were very well defended, right? One of our biggest weaknesses in, in any utility, any critical infrastructure is the supply chain. And again, yeah, have zero trust on your suppliers, you know, don't always trust them. You know, they should go through the same checks that everybody else goes through. Their access to your network should never be based on where they, where they are in the internet. So relating this back to the account segregation and MFA, if you have a third party that's coming in to do maintenance on some critical infrastructure, make sure that that account is unique. You know, make sure they're using MFA. Make sure that they are dialing in from an acceptable place in the world, right? Yeah. Let's, let's still limit this. You know, I mentioned untrusted networks. Sure, we don't want to always trust that vendor's network, but maybe we don't want that vendor dialing from Sri Lanka or something or South America somewhere, right? They shouldn't be remoting in when they're on vacation. 
show. You know, let's say, hey, you've got to you got to be on your company's network in order to VPN into our systems. And then some folks go as far as actually phys- as the the customer physically retaining the second factor token. And so the contractor then authenticates username and password, mm-hmm. has a call the customer, and then authenticate over the phone and get that second factor code, that six digit code. So oh, wow. you can you can do a lot of zero trust like things, you know, even with your third parties. Um, another thing that I did from the threat intel perspective is I looked for new domains mimicking our suppliers. And I would proactively sync all those domains. Phishing, you know, most of us look for infringements upon our own brand, which is smart. You should do that. But mostly, mostly those abuses are used to target your customers, your peers, your uh, partners. So conversely, I'm looking at those folks. I'm looking at my infrastructure providers, my ICS OEMs at the last job. And I was, would proactively block um, new infrastructure that is mimicking our big suppliers. That's hard to scale. Mm-hmm. Some suppliers come and go, but that's a good strategy, right? We, we blocked a lot of stuff that way. And again, you know, and that's not necessarily not trusting my, my vendor, but that's just not trusting every domain out there. So uh, that's another good strategy that we use to help reduce uh, third-party risk. So, so I can say that one hits close to home for us because obviously within the security intelligence business here at Newstar, we have our own sort of DNS, ultra threat feed intelligence uh, that, that we provide. And that's certainly one of the use cases we talk about with our customers and about how to protect their supply chain is mining sort of newly observed domains for lookalikes of your supply chain and, and even of your own brand so you don't get fooled nor do your suppliers get fooled when interacting with sensitive information. Now, I, I think I think you said this, but I do want to touch on this. You know, obviously, the last 15, 10 years, uh, there's been a migration into more of a hybrid model of infrastructure, right? Uh, moving from strictly on-prem now to, to, to cloud services and having a hybrid of them both. Uh, that doesn't preclude having a zero-trust policy, right? You can have that environment and still follow z- zero-trust policy? Correct. In fact, zero-trust helps you get, I think, to that hybrid place, right? Hi, it's John again. As we talk about ransomware and the zero trust security model, I wanted to let you know that Newstar offers a broad range of industry leading security products and services to meet the needs of your enterprise. Newstar's Ultra GeoPoint provides unparalleled accuracy and an extensive list of contextual fields to leverage IP decisioning data for your security, fraud, and compliance needs. Ultra GeoPoint is complemented by Ultra Reputation our data set identifying IP addresses likely to be malicious. We also offer Ultra DNS to manage your critical domains, ensuring they are always available and secure. Newstar's portfolio of application security products, which includes Ultra DDoS Protect and Ultra WAF, utilize deep insights of network traffic to ensure users' digital networks are secure across all touchpoints. Newly augmented with the robust bot management capabilities of UltraBot Protect, it becomes even more powerful. To learn more about Newstar's lineup of security products and services, please visit home.newstar and navigate to the Security Solutions section. Now back to the podcast. When for an IT org that is mandating like VPN, 
you know, you're routing your traffic from your home through the corporate VPN and then out to like Azure or GCP or AWS or something. Very inefficient. By using a zero trust model, you know, we can get rid of that VPN. We can improve the employee experience by reducing the friction to access all those cloud applications that we have built in the last, you know, 10 years, but have accelerated in the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. So we, we have some re- research out on how on zero trust and employee experience and how ZT enhances EX, how it makes it easier to be an employee of your company. Well, on that note, then, based on conversations with your with with enterprises, you know, where where are we on the journey then to having widespread acceptance and adoption of the security model? And let me ask this too: Is ransomware increasing the interest in, in adopting the model? So I'll answer the last question first. I think it's clear from the Biden executive order that mandates zero trust architectures for federal networks that ransomware is driving a lot of that. The ransomware, we'll say epidemic, maybe, mm-hmm. is um, driving that executive order and a lot of the um, mandates from that. So absolutely, more ransomware. We're, get, we, we're getting more interest in zero trust, 100% there. And just and you know to that point, then is you're seeing more interest in overall in adopting these policies in the enterprises you're talking to. You know, is that the case now versus yeah versus 24 months ago when when we really weren't talking about ransomware? You're seeing some momentum there. So I've only been in force for 18 months, so that's as far as my Forrester history will go back. Um, Zero trust is already a big thing amongst Forrester clients. That's you know a big reason why they came to us. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously. People outside of Forrester are talking about it a lot. More vendors talking about it. Uh, other firms, you know, are, are talking about it. And, and of course, we have uh, government folks talking about it. I know before I landed at Forrester, Department of Energy had set aside some research budget for zero trust for uh, critical infrastructure. So this this does go back. It's not like a new thing just six months ago. Mm-hmm. This has been building over more than a decade this interest, right? And zero trust has evolved. It was very network centric for a while. Now it's more holistic where we cover, like I said, the workloads, the devices, people, and networks, of course. Got it. I guess with that, Brian, we're we're just about out of time for today. Before we go, how can listeners learn more about the cybersecurity research you're performing with Forrester? How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, I mean, Google's your friend, you know. Uh, there are there are not a whole lot of Brian Kimes in the world. There's only one that works at Forrester. So uh, that's the simplest way. Brian Kaim at Forrester uh, will find me. Uh, you'll get. Uh, I have some public blogs out there, some that tease research, some that just are, you know, my own hot take on a current issue like a colonial pipeline. Uh, but do follow me on social media, both Twitter and LinkedIn. You can find me at Brian P. Kime. I am in the middle of industrial control systems um, market research right now. So I'll be looking at a lot of vendors that help secure critical infrastructure. And then I'm getting back into some vulnerability risk management research late in uh, 2021 and 2022. So a lot of things coming here. I haven't forgotten the threat intelligence stuff either. So I've got some ideas up here and um, I may be able to get to some some more threat intel research, get a little more technical and and provide some tools for, for folks to improve their threat intelligence capabilities. Very cool. And I'll say we'll put a link to your Twitter handle as well as, you know, some of your blog posts in in the show notes. But uh, with that, Brian, many thanks for joining the podcast today. John, thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. And thank you all for listening to the Lock and Shield podcast presented by Newstar. We look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks. Thanks.